Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 2nd of September 2018. Behaviorism is as old as the hills, literally. And powerful institutions which govern countries made up of the specialist advisors and so on, kings, queens, and eventually governments and oligarchs. Or It makes no difference what kind of system it calls itself. It has specialists, and specialists study humanity. And as like all education, it relies on information gleaned from the past and built up often over centuries. And I've done talks before about behaviorism, many years ago, and the different characters involved in the tests to do with, well, basically how to alter human nature for the powers that be want to control human nature. So they employ specialists to study us all the time. Bertrand Russell, of course, was a big proponent of this, and you've got to understand that studying humanity doesn't make you a genius. But what it does do is give you an edge on understanding why people do certain things in order, this is from the least point of view, in order to manipulate their behavior. So behavior modification is essential for peaceful rule over masses of people. It's much easier for the rulers to get away with different things, which perhaps they shouldn't be able to, by domesticating the people. And they do it by understanding what motivates fear and motivates behavior change, using fear and and the threats of things that could happen. In ancient times, of course, they used the common plagues, famine, warfare-type technique, pestilence, earthquakes, drought, bad crops, you have a heavy rain season or a very dry season, because climate change has been going on since the world was created, it seems. And they don't want you to even know that these days. But anyway, that's really what was used to to motivate people to change their behavior. And so that those who can control them or wanted to control them could have or gain power over the people and manipulate them for their own own desires, and generally it's so they can live much, much better than the ordinary people at the top and have a, a lifestyle of comfort and luxury and good health too, by the way, for good food, good health, accommodation type things, and, and no physical work, no, no physical work for them, because we all know that real hard physical work can really take it out of you. Motor mechanics, for instance, car mechanics, auto mechanics, have a a very high incidence of cancers, different cancers, because they use a lot of chemicals in their jobs. Nowadays, of course, they can use different gloves and so on when they're working, disposal gloves, to try and keep the, the different fluids off of their off their skin. But even at that, they still breathe a lot of it in. You understand the elite, and I was looking at some of the, the ages of the elite Today they die at a very, very old age. And generally they're all family in Britain, for instance, will hit a hundred. And maybe maybe more, in fact. Some of them. But they'll hit about a hundred. And yeah, they have definitely the higher 
medical care than the general population get. There's, there's three branches of everything, three levels of everything in society. And general university level and any kind of the sciences is, is what people think all, is all that exists. But no, it's much higher. There's a middle level too above that and a higher level above that too. So they can live at a really good age. I think even John McCain's mother is about 106. Something like that. But getting back to what I'm saying, you've got to understand that, that, that elites always live off of the people. Off the people. There's nothing special in the blood of the blue bloods. It's not there. Nothing special. It is true that royalty tends to be very inbred. In fact, it's not unusual for them to marry their first cousins. Queen Victoria, I think, married her first cousin as well. And that was part of the reason, of course, they tried to outmarry a little bit outside the lineage with Prince Charles. They had all these articles in the newspapers at the time. And the reasons that they thought applicable for that happening at the time because they were becoming too inbred, in a sense. But don't forget that they're, they're a symbol. Royalty is a symbol of a system. And the system around them is often more important, because they're all families depend upon, again, experts in different fields, specialized fields, to manage society for them. And they're well rewarded, the royalty's well rewarded for that, but really in a sense they're partly figurehead. And it's part of the myth as well of, of nations and histories. Because most of the history you're given is so whitewashed, it's it's more mythological than, than real at times. More so in some countries than others. But as I say, the, the royalty tends to intermarry in, in their own families, but so does the aristocracy, including the banking families too. So money tends to marry money to keep it in the family and accumulate more and more and more of the wealth. So they're specialised in a sense. It was interesting a long time ago to read the Huxley's points of view on, on history. And, and people can bash and bash and bash Aldous Huxley a lot because he was certainly part of the, the guys in the know of what was happening in his day, especially since he knew that his brother Julian was a complete eugenical socialist wanting to order society. Again, that Huxley's themselves were, were pretty well up there with the aristocracy. But Aldous Huxley gave out little mixed matches at times too to do with warnings to society. And he said that there are techniques developed which will influence people's behavior and decision-making abilities without their knowing it, uh, perhaps yeah, against their better interests, in fact. And that's what he was warning about. He knew this was true. And as far back as the 1800s, some of the, the organizers of even the socialism at that time, even Blavatsky mentioned it in one of her books, that uh, technique already existed to influence people's behavior. So within certain circles, again, and it was generally the Masonic circles at that time, the higher Masonic circles, and the higher degrees, of course, that they knew a little bit about the agenda, the future. It isn't just the brotherhood of man and a woman and, and other things as well. 
it's the manipulation and the, and the control of society and the guidance of society without society and those in society even knowing that it's happening. So Bertrand Russell talked about it openly, as I've said before, that everything was wrong with ordinary people, everything. They ran on emotion, and most folk did, he said. And it was easier to get people to, to, to do what you wanted by a brass band and dancers and so and, and again, emblems of the nation or something like that. In other words, emotion and culture industry get, getting used. It's much easier to influence behavior and get them to change their ways or follow even than, than trying rhetoric and persuasion. But today we have the behaviorists, as I say, and it's very evident that uh, everything is run by the neuroscientists and behaviorists, etc. And the universities have all these specialized areas, often funded, in fact, by our tax money and, again, the big foundations' money. And the foundations really are there on behalf of big, big international corporations that have been here for an awful long time who fund the the, the armies of non-governmental organizations and also they fund the different think tanks that work on planning the future on behalf of the, the present elite, to make sure the elite's always here and their children are always here in charge of things. And it's never been so open as it is today. Now, I remember too, and I'll tell you another thing, before I get off the, the, the topic of Aldous Huxley, I had to uh, <laughs> get a good chuckle when he talked about popular culture. And he knew that popular culture has always been used as a form of behavior control, behavior change, and and also for warfare purposes. Because when you look at the old, say, the old World War II songs, in, in the UK is a good example, and this, they, they can't get rid of them in a sense. It's, it's embedded almost in the psyche of the people and even the children of those who live through all. And they constantly still give awards to, to, to the old singers like Vera Lynn, with the White Cliffs of Dover and we'll meet again all these kind of things. So, but these are meant for, these are wartime propaganda songs and folk don't realize that. Using immense patriotism, the family, the, the boys back home, all that kind of stuff, bring the boys back home, all that kind of stuff. Very emotional during an emotional time. But the average person, when, when they hear all, they really think it's, it's coming out from the, the heart of the people themselves. They don't realize it's written by professionals. And then you had the kind of semi-comical songs churned out by people like Formby, George Formby, who pretends that he's a working class kind of character in, in movies that were made at the time. And he played the banjo and sung songs and so on. But you had silly, silly songs that H.G. Wells talked about before World War II when he talked about one of the dirigible balloons going down in one of his, his novels during a war that was coming with Germany and how the silly song kept playing when they were crashing, the silly nonsensical song. And what he was referring to was the songs like Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor in the Bedpost Overnight type of thing, that kind of nonsensical song. That kind of thing is what he's talking about. But it was interesting that Aldous Huxley talked about it because he he said he, he had tried to go out to find out what about popular culture. He'd never been to the movies, apparently. 
and he went out to see his first movie, which was his last movie. And he said it was Al Jolson who was singing Mammy in, one, in, this, in the big movie that was made. He says that was enough for him. They put him off it completely. It's quite interesting that he didn't give anything a second chance because he knew already what popular culture was and how it was guided by powers above it all. Always presented as though it's coming from the people or the class that it's aimed at. It's always right to the present time, and that's how it's done. And it's used to a great extent in warfare as well. And today it's been used all through the, the pop, then the rock era. And all the different fads that came afterwards were all designed by a higher industry power that, that's a star-making machine that, that makes them, the, the ones that they've picked out to be the stars, to push the new sounds and so on, right down to, to rap, etc. And the gangster culture, it didn't come from the communities that sang them, it came from the people who already ruled the industry for very definite reasons. And again, the people are never, the, the general population are never supposed to know how your culture is managed and altered and pushed. You're supposed to go along with it, and most folk do go along with it without thinking. It, it doesn't dawn on them that they're being manipulated all the time. If you look just at the ads, you'll, you'll see, and, and billboards, never mind uh, on television or on internet and all the different uh, apps that you're using and so on, flashing at you through your phone or whatever it is you use, uh, the the amount of of, um, how important it is to manipulate you is incredibly important. And then the social social systems that are put out there for you to jump into. And, And people do jump out. Again, too, Russell knew this, how people... It's easy to get people to do what you want them to do. It's very, very easy if you give them what they think is some added advantage, which they never had before. And, it, and it, often in a society that's where folk are lonely, and they can, there's no more loneliness inside cities, for instance, where it's very cold. It's a very cold system. It's an inhumane system, well, well understood, well documented, the whole system, long before I was born, right down to the, the population size of a city, the density per square mile of a city, before people start going crazy and deviancy breaks out, just like the rats in the cage, there's a specific number that, that they can get up to, then they start killing each other and so on, and acting in de- deviant fashion. It's, it's the same with humans. And that's why you have lots of entertainment and clubs and booze and drugs in the cities. It's allowed. So anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is that the target of mass manipulation and very intense manipulation the intention is to get it across to the people without them understanding they are being manipulated by outside forces. That every step of the decision-making uh, abilities that they have on different areas is being manipulated, every single step, by professionals. Because they know exactly how you'll go from A to, to Z, step by step by step, with little prompts, etc., and uh, and the, what they'll do to, to even confer amongst their peer group to find out if they go along with this too, what do you do, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's, okay, that's what I was thinking myself, blah, blah, blah. And they go along with it. And so behavior studies constantly, constantly, constantly. And then they create the star industry. The star industry, the Facebook, the Zuckerbergs and so on, it's the same star industry that creates actors as stars or singers as stars or musicians 
and it, it really is a machinery. And, and then you think they're somehow better or superior than you. In reality, they're all fronts for incredible worldwide intelligence service that runs the system. And I've done talks before about all the, the fake bots, in fact, many of the, the friends that they have that they're getting in touch with them or even criticize them or even argue with them and get them are actually algorithms. They're not people at all. They're constantly experimenting on the people you know. Constantly. Constantly experiment on them. Including techniques and way to make people depressed. They'll pick on them. And it never dawns in the public that your government will do the same, but your government certainly does do these things and agencies that work for them, especially in the behaviorist field. We're talking about governments who have sprayed their own societies and populations with deadly gases, for instance, and chemicals to see how it would affect an enemy, for instance, like in the Soviet Union, in a Cold War situation, if they ever had to use them. I've done the talks and put them out there. And they did it in Norfolk in England, for instance. And the ships sprayed the stuff off the coast, Royal Naval ships, and they tested the population to see if they got sick, etc., and what happened to them. That's only one of many of these kind of things. So yes, you are subject. If you are put down there as a test subject, anything can be done to you, and you'll never know it. Right to the end. But you'll be incredibly well studied. The same as the whole population of Canada were put down by a secret agreement that came out years later by the Canadian government making deals with the big genetically modified food industries and chemical industries for the pesticides. A secret agreement to test all their, their, their new modified vegetables on the public without telling us. There was no choice because we didn't know. But because there's a great health system in Canada, as far as everybody being on it, basically, province by province, is still linked up to, a central, to central computers in Ottawa. All the data. So every visit to a doctor, they've got a copy getting flashed to them. Every visit to a hospital is flashed to them. All data is flashed in real time. So it's a great way to, to... And we just studied all the time, definitely. They even had articles in the papers at the time before we even knew we were being stu- given the poison food. And it is poison food, of course it is. It was killing and giving tumours to the rats and mice that were fed stomach cancers and so on. It escalated like crazy with it. And at the same time, too, they started giving... Medications for the stomach to reduce acid, like proton pump and inhibitors, you could buy over off the shelves. Eventually, it was, just, it was prescription only for years, forever. But then, but and no one knew why. Well, why did they suddenly do this? It was to take care of the side effects of the foods. And then studying how much was getting sold. Everything is statistics, statistics, statistics. That's how they do it. So don't believe your your governments are there to help you. And they can put down many people, many, many people, as expendable for, for what they claim is, is a, for, for a good cause and good research. As they do in wartime, because they're constantly at war with you. Constantly. The target of behavior modification should be kept in the dark about what's happening to them, and they must be allowed always to think that, and prompted to think is their own decision-making ability. I've said before that it's sad, very sad, 
that people fought for centuries to get rights. Centuries. Only to give them away generations later for a few percentage points off the price with convenience cards at stores and things like that. Give all away voluntarily for a few pennies. Isn't that that sad? So every tyrant in history or, or any wannabe, Bonaparte, for instance, or a Stalin, a Lenin, Stalin, or, or a Hitler, anybody, if they'd only known, they didn't, they didn't have to invade countries. They could just have opened up stores and, and, and had the people get special offers. If they gave all their data up to you, date of birth and families and the whole bit, answer these questionnaires, yada, 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 for more points to discount, yada, yada, yada. And, and away they go. That's it. It's so easy. So They don't even think today. They don't really don't even think. And it's scary. Because most folk have jumped at it naturally. Most really have. Under the guise of it's so, everything's so convenient. So convenient. And a lot of the old jokes that, that uh, are old today, anyway, came from behaviorist studies. Such as the, 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 you would give everything up for convenience. It wasn't just the clapping, clap and the light will go on and off, etc. Eventually you'll be, you'll be plumbed in to a chair permanently and you'll be helpless, really, technically. Everything will be brought to you and piped into you, etc. For convenience sake, you give it all up for convenience. I can remember, too, when the fashion industry brought out the cargo pants with the flat-type pockets in the front. And the customers didn't know. It was aimed at mainly teenagers. There were no side pockets, just easily. It was, the, it was to get the, you put your cards in it. They were in a cashless society, and they were getting trained from school, before they left school and university, how you use all the credit cards and can all debt and so on, but use cards, cards, cards. They didn't know. All this was, was prompted and managed by the big companies run finance. So they make the pants even if, so you could just put your, your card in there and that was it. No, no room for change or cash, anything like that. And when you see all this and you live through it, you're astonished at how easy it, it is for controllers to, to do it all. H.G. Wells talked about the real reasons, which he was all for. He was part of it. He wanted free love. That was part of the revolutionary movement for the far left. The far left was owned from the start by the far right, you might say, <laughs> because there's only one group of oligarchs at the top and they're on the finances and everything else. Therefore, you find that everything in the system is designed by their scientific elite, like the Huxleys, for instance. Who had, Julian Huxley admitted that his, his group belonged to me, his background, his families and peer group, belonged to the scientific controllers. They called them controllers. And there were financial controllers for the dominant minority at the top. And the scientific controllers from academia, etc. And that's the most important one today. Because they've been working on you increasingly, up until constantly, <laughs> as we are today, I mean, since at least the 1950s, and even before, but definitely from then on in academia, from the 50s. 
And after wars, they quieten it down a bit. They're, they're carefully quieting things down a bit. Eugenics quietens down after wars, where, where eugenics has been used. And eugenics itself is, a for, is part of warfare too, because generally the, the bulk of folk who get killed are the peasant class who join up. So it gives sort of that, that population too. But H.G. Wells also talked about free love from the late 1800s onwards, because that was part of the ones who controlled him and the group that he joined. And he hated the working class. He was one step from the working class. That's why he hated it, because he only got a good education because his mother was a, a housemaid, I guess, maybe one of the controlling ones, the head one of a wealthy family's home where he lived. And he saw the working class going past the windows every day. And it terrified them. It terrified them that you could end up like that. So he, he hated them. And it's true to an extent that you can start to hate that which doesn't fight back. It was also in um, a good movie, a, a good example of it, with uh, Vive for Vendetta, where a woman who was a scientist who helped experiment on the prisoners in this totalitarian system, she, when she was asked why she did it and so on, and how she felt about it, she says, well, and eventually you began to despise them. Because they came in like sheep every day, they were herded in for their injections, this, this drug they were testing out. And then they eventually didn't even look up at you or anything, it was just like, like things, not like people. That's what she was trying to say. And so it's very true, that's how people who believe they're in charge begin to see the rest of those they're in charge of. Today there's not a facet of society that isn't controlled by neuroscientists, behaviorists, all working together. They know exactly how to do it. It's quite easy to do. And they have full reign to do it and permission by those who own the system. We are owned, our countries are owned by those who own the system. And yes, you can go into a whole different rigmarole of, of legalities and corporations and what a corporation is, etc., etc., etc. Even your local police will be under a corporation of a town somewhere or a company. But in reality, as I say, those who control known uh, have given permission through their, their secret services and secret secret services and special secret services above all the different institutions that they have to, to go ahead with all of this. And through the information technology that's out there and every, making sure that everyone's on it, they've got everyone's information here at the tip, at their fingertips all the time. And they don't need lots and lots and lots and lots of people all the time working on it, on you. They simply use the programmers and spy bots and algorithms of all kinds, including interactive ones, to work on you to make sure that you will answer the algorithms, think they're people and they're sock puppets, as they call them. That's what they look, most of them are, actually. And then get you angry. They can argue with you and everything else because they've figured out what kind of personality type you are and so on. And a lot of it isn't even real. Quite interesting, isn't it? And when they use real people to agitate out there and troll people, they have the algorithms and the computer systems literally studying them they find the techniques to do it, and then they copy them. It's also no, no coincidence that all technology is pushed as a great thing. And we've never had such an intrusive system in history as we have today. Never, never, ever. 
Your mind used to be your own regardless of what you thought or, or, how, or how you acted or how you portrayed yourself in public. Your mind was your own. You don't even have that today. That's the last enemy. Your mind. It's, it's, it's terribly sad, really terribly sad. But again, you've never had democracy. Never ever came close to having a democracy. And if you have a democracy, those who understand society, like as I've said before, the, the Machiavelli types down through history, and the underground current and stream, as they call themselves too, meaning the secret societies that, that existed up until they come out a bit, a bit more openly, some of them, in the 20th century, or even in the 18th century. But uh, before that, they were very, very secretive. The underground stream of knowledge, that's what they meant. They, they kept passing it on, passing it on. And the Invisible College was part of it too. Uh, they, that's what they called them, so the Invisible College. It wasn't, it wasn't really alchemy as such. It was chemistry, science, mathematics, geometry, architecture, things like that. All sciences. And they had their own, that's what they formed their own society out of too, out of the invisible college. And expanded and expanded and expanded until today. You can go into the city of London, for instance, and, and look at their big, big, up front, I'll put a link up to one of their massive meetings that they had to celebrate their founding, in fact, in seventeen seventeen supposedly. But it's not a founding, it's only when it came out openly. They were there long on before under different guises. And that, again, is a whole different field, how it started, who originated it, and so on. And again, you'll find money incredibly well tied to it all because the system, again, uses behaviorism on its own members. And if you want to profit from the herd, here's how, how you can do it. A word to the wise, etc., etc. And And their members get little privileges, and they can also get big privileges and insights into how to make lots of money off the herd. And how you manage the herd. As Pike said, beasts of burden and stake on the table by choice and consent. If they wouldn't use their own minds. In other words, use them. No moral qualms there, you see. No, none at all. But there's never been a time, never been a time, where the elites have got their wishes. And because it's not democracy, as I say, you're not asked to give your permission about anything. You get a computer, you get whatever, and they've got, you've got, they're, they're building massive profiles on you constantly. And testing you out constantly without you even knowing it through algorithms. They're automatic. Gathering data and also finding ways to change your opinions on things and change your minds on things. All the time, by the way. And most of you will never, ever know that. It's no big deal when they've already got the, the algorithms there, to target millions of people at once. Even from one uh, supercomputer, it's no big deal at all. Many millions are targeted at once. For different, to change different opinions on different things. It's easy to do. But the target's not supposed to know. In this so-called democratic system. It reminds me of... I mentioned this before too, the movie The Devil's Advocate, where Al Pacino, who plays the devil, has groomed a young lawyer to be, who's actually supposedly his son, who doesn't know it, 
to take over from him. But uh, the son re- retaliates and rebels. And uh, he, he says, you made me do this and you made me do that to the devil or Satan. But you know, says, no, I didn't make you do anything. He says, I just gave you choices. Don't you want this? You know, don't you want that? In other words, this this is exactly how behaviorism works too. Exactly how it works. Don't you want this? Don't you want that? Your tongue's hanging out, and that's it. And Pacino says, "I never made you. You you made the decisions. I just showed you the choice of what you could have." And that's how it's done. Now we've all heard of the. The farce with Facebook, which continues on as always, and probably, I'm, I'm sure more laws were probably passed to allow them to do what they do. That's what these these things are about. It's nothing about stopping something. It's, to put, it's like when the, the government's admitted that there are cyber security groups and, and agencies and, and special um, services were monitoring everyone for years off their cell phones in the 90s into the you know, 2000s and so on and beyond without permission or any law. And they simply pass laws eventually to, to make it legal, what they've been doing already. Not a matter to the public, because you've, you've no say in anything. And nothing's done about the, nothing's No one's ever punished for anything like that. Never. Because, you see, this, the real systems that run you don't see you as equal, number one. They certainly don't believe that they serve you, number two. And you have to really get that through your head. Remember what Russell said, too, a big part of it Russell was on about, and he was one of them as well. He worked for the Macy Group, which is a CIA front for changing culture and managing culture, and really designing it from scratch for for America and Britain and the whole West. And they worked with all the other organizations at the time that were given permission to do the same thing. And you didn't get any say in the matter either. You never do. Anyway, getting back to Facebook and the, the massive data collection and the Cambridge Analytica that was only one part of a parent company, mind you, they're still on the go big time. I mean, it's into a lot more than just what they were doing there. And there's no doubt about it. It really is in, into intelligence services and, 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 and other things too in that area. Now here's one article, for instance. This one here says, uh, who are we? We are a global community of public and private sector decision makers. As they're called BSPA. It says, we're behavioral science researchers, policy analysts, and practitioners. They practice like, like professionals. Members like doctors. Doctors don't, don't, uh, are not, not allowed to cure, they practice. That way, too, legally, nothing can happen to them because they're only practicing. You know, that's how it's done. Words are awfully important, remember. And so, with a bold mission to promote the application of rigorous behavioral science research, rigorous behavioral science research that serve the public interest. Now, think about that, the public interest. Not people's or persons or the public, the public, the thing, you know, that big herd, you see. We serve as an information hub and community builder, connecting individuals, that's different from the mob, you might say, you see, from, from the public, individuals and organizations, that's your NGOs and your big foundations and all the rest, and your think tanks, through our conferences, spotlight workshops, 
task forces and the publication of newsletters and behavioural science and policy. And so the impact of public and private sector policies depends critically on the behaviour of individuals, groups and organisations. We believe a clear understanding of the power of behavioural science research and interventions can provide innovative solutions for addressing challenges faced by policymakers and other practitioners. Now, they work for governments too, remember. And you think that you vote people in in, in government? (laughs) To, to fulfill your wishes and what you'd like. No, no, they, these characters get the professionals and they change you, you suit them. Anyway, you keep repeating the same things over and over again. We actively collaborate with a number of behavioural policy-oriented organisations and direct our members to their activities and services. Now, a few years ago, I mentioned uh, different books like, like uh, Nudge, for instance, by the science are they called it, under with Obama. And there's no coincidence using the czar term, meaning commissar, like the Soviet system, appointed, not not elected, but appointed in an authority position. So you, you found it with Richard Taller, that was a, a, a co-writer of that book, Nudge, along with uh, Sunstein at the time. And they're all on the same organizations, but not just one organization, as you'll find. And they also have a leadership council provides guidance in setting the strategic direction of the field, etc. Now, other ones I'll put up tonight, too, will show you these organizations. They're all interconnected. They'll have complete government backing, uh, above even the levels of government, but the level that you know of within government, and above that, too. There's, there's, ones, there's organizations above your government, and they're completely integrated, too, with private international corporations and financing, by the way. Now, this is, that's the one, as I say, organization. But then, a few years ago, uh, when that was all coming, the nudging policies and so on, there was, a, and one of the articles I read, it was called NESTA. But NESTA, and it's formerly NESTA National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts as an innovation foundation based in the, in the UK. It acts through a, a combination of practical programs, investment policy and research, and the formation of partnerships p- to promote innovation across a broad range of sectors. It was originally funded by... Now, here, listen, listen to this. Originally funded by a £250 million endowment from the UK National Lottery Fund. This is what they're telling you, eh? Believe it or not, that's what they're telling you. £250 million. The endowment is now kept a trust, and Nesta uses interest from the trust to meet its charitable objects and fund and support its projects. No, they, they, they classify it as a charity, right? Yeah, no kidding you. But the government's all behind it. And so, it pays, so it's, it's a charity. I pay no taxes and so on. Set up in 1998 by an independent endowment in the United Kingdom, established by an Act of Parliament hmm? for this charity. Yeah? Hmm? <laughs> it just happens to get massive funding, your tax money, to brainwash you and manage you. That's what it's for. Initially, they said that it would help. Uh, they could nudge people into paying more taxes and helping charity and pay more money to charities and so on, so the government wouldn't have to, etc. Really, that, that's the, the, the lame excuse they gave. Very lame. Uh, 
And they talk about, they also have other investors with them in investment management. Investors are big society capital, that's one of them. And the Omidyar Network, the fund invests in social ventures with innovative products or services that address the following three challenges. An aging population. Now, they actually send out articles out to, to nudge doctors and practitioners into a new way of thinking and seeing the aged. Not in a very pleasant way, but an economic way, by the way. It's just astonishing what they're into. There's too much to, me to, to even put out in, in a few days that I have here on just that. And also the employability of young people and the sustainability of UK communities. They're also the ones that work for all different government agencies and tacking on sustainable living, etc. Sustainability. The Club of Rome agenda. That man and humanity was, was the enemy, therefore, of society, etc., etc. Now, they also, and here's the thing that got me. See, Nesta... It was in the same little little part of London where the the new cybersecurity building was put up. And they have right next door to them the big Google massive building the, the, where all the, the huge cables are piped into. And then there's Nesta. All working together, that's what it is, folks. All your data across the planet, every country is getting going through the system. And it isn't just the Nesta deal, you see. You also have, and I mentioned last week that you'd, and the weeks before, you don't even know where all your ideas and, and, and your opinions are coming from or how you're even being prompted, you see. And I'll put up this article, Behavioral Insights Team. Okay, Behavioral Insights Team. Also known unofficially as the Nudge Unit. Is an organization that was set up to apply nudge theory, behavioral, economic, and psychology to try to improve government policy and services as well as save the UK government money. That's what they're telling you, right? Originally set up as a team within the cabinet office, that's your parliament. It's now a, a limited company. Behavioral Insights Limited is headed by psychologist David Halpern. And it was set up in 2010 with a coalition government in a probationary fashion. April 2013, it was all announced it would be partially privatized as a mutual joint venture. Interestingly, public-private again. And all government departments, by the way, are using these teams for their different projects. Whatever they want to get across to the public to get the public to comply with, these characters do it for them. And not free, by the way. Naturally, your tax money funds. See, your tax money must fund all your brainwashing. It says, uh, although specific ideas devised by the, the BIT have been imitated in several other countries, and Canada's got one too, uh, the US has got one as well. By the way, Homeland Security in the US works with them, so they get all the data of all the British citizens, by the way, through Homeland Security, and they have their own nudge units too working them. Isn't that interesting? And you think you've got nations, and you vote for national governments, you think, and national parties are there to deal for you, work for you? Really? Hmm, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> I'll put uh, quite a few articles up here on this to show you what they're all into. 
increasing tax collection rates by changing the default web link, how to nudge you along or even make you worried about things and nudge you along, etc. It's, it's coercion and threats in a sense. Reducing medical prescription errors, it says. Eh? So they've got all different universities working for them too. Imperial College London, uh, funded by BIT, sought to reduce prescription errors by redesigning the prescription forms to make it easier to distinguish between micrograms and milligrams. Distinct uh, options that had to be circled were included in in simulating testing, new charts were found to be significantly improved and so on. But the thing is, when you get into what they've really been up to, as I say, it's been nudging doctors not, not to give out so many antibiotics. And again, too, it's carefully done. When you really study and study and study, you'll, you'll find that you've got everyone categorized into segments, aged, you know, valid, invalid. See, valid, in, in legalities, you're, when you're valid, you have valid driving licenses, or you have an invalid one. When you're working and you're paying into a system, you're valid. When you're over this, an age uh, and you're not paying in, you're taking from it. As the UN says, you're not a, a good citizen if you're simply taking. If you're, pay, if you're consuming and producing, you're a good citizen. So if you're over a certain age and you're tired, you're now invalid. You're invalid, invalid. You get, you get what it means. These are the wording is awfully important, and we use it all the time, and folk never think. So when they see older people, well, why keep giving them antibiotics when they're going to die eventually down the road, whatever age or whatever it happens to be? Uh, just, just withhold these antibiotics. And so, I'm not kidding you. There's articles out on that. How they nudge the doctors themselves. Now even to persuade the doctors that it's for the good, oh, save the bacteria becoming resistant, etc. You understand there's a lot more going on here than than they'll tell you. Always is. Look at the secrecy of involved. Why don't you get a warning each time you click on something on the net or on your phone or whatever? Where you get a warning sign. By the way, uh, this is a, a nudge unit. Blah 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 giving you the option, because you never get an option. You think, you, you think you're making your own decisions. Ha, ha, ha. Now, they also have giving a day's salary to charity. How about that, eh? So BIT ran a, a trial with Deutsche Bank to examine how to encourage people to donate part of their salary to charity. The control group received uh, generic emails and leaflets encouraging people to participate. The approach was tested against a range of new interventions, including offering people sweets branded with a charitable giving message and making the email more personalized. To make it personalized, it's to you. It's to you. They were found to be highly effective and cheap way of increasing uptake and showed an even greater impact when they were combined. Now remember the the BIT is an international group of experts, and they, they, they take them from professors across the planet, and they'll work together to change the whole society into a common culture, gradually, gradually, gradually. And also to take down certain cultures, too. They claim have had too much privilege. You know, the wealthy folk of Britain, you know, where, where most of the folk were working class, and up into the 20th century... Uh, they didn't have welfare, etc. Yeah, if you're and if you were ill, you ended up dying or end up in a poor house. That's how Charlie Chaplin, by the way, 
became communist. He literally had his mum in a poor house and they separated from him, his mum, and he was brought up for years in a, in a poor house. A lot of folk died that way too. You see, it was your fault for being poor. Something had to be wrong with you, and it was a terrible... And, it was, and that whole idea was fostered by uh, the state and the treasury and all the rest of it. That they actually had that as policy, to put that across. There's something wrong with the people for being poor. It's their own fault to make them guilty and to take any kind of job, even if, if it was already killing them or they were unhealthy to and couldn't work anyway. It made no difference. Anyway, so Canada's got one. A few actually. The Ontario and different provinces have the same same organisation, working for all provincial governments and federal governments, and all levels and, and departments of governments to make sure they can get their policies across to the public and they get the compliance of the public as they change society because they're all change agents. You understand, and you have no say in the matter because you don't even know what's even happening. <laughs> Do you vote these organizations in, like the BIT? No, you don't. Do you vote the secret services in from Britain or Homeland Security in? No, you don't. But they know all about you across the country and Canada too. Wake up to how reality really is run, folks. Really, I'm telling you. Anyway, he uses uh, experiments and, uh, and they have to experiment on the public. And they also boast about having access well, this organization, about having access through the universities that are given access, some of them, to all your emails and your chatter and the test out your, uh, the memes and so on, and even put them out there and watch how many is going into it. And how your, your, they'll put out stories, or even fake, to see if you'll join and get angry about them and find out how many folk are getting angry, why they're getting angry, and who are their clusters of friends, are they angry too, what they have in common, etc., 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 etc. Is that what you're voting for? Is that what your tax money is supposed to go to? Is it? And you go and vote. You actually go and vote, you people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Behavioral Science and Policy Association, right? And the rigorous behavioral sciences, research, etc., that serve the public interest. That should tell you to help and nudge to make the public make the right decisions. See, you just don't make the right decisions. They know what decisions you should be taking because they're better than you. They're special people, you understand, and you don't vote them in. Every tyrant in history would salivate, salivate at the thought of having, having this kind of power. And the public are given their rights up without a thought because they're managed along step by step into doing it by professionals who understand you. And uh, reducing medical prescription errors, again, as I say, they even they do it to, to even get you to, to, to stop, get the doctors to stop giving antibiotics. And of course, they now give you the death pill, don't they? Maybe it's a lot cheaper. You've lived long enough, haven't you? Hmm. Do you get a say in that? No. Now here's a good article too, the Lord O'Donnell, the Lord O'Donnell, high Freemason, very high, very up there. He served uh, in, in, the, in the governments of Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Andrew Turnbull, uh, preceded by Andrew Turnbull, I should say, and, and succeeded by Jeremy Haywood. He was the head, the most senior civil servant of the, of, uh, the civil service, by the way. The top, the top 
right? And he's up there in all top banks and everything else at the same time. Isn't that amazing, eh? Hmm? And he's made a lord eventually. Went to all the right schooling and, and the right places and the right degrees. And uh, he was in the British Embassy at Washington, serving as the first secretary of the Economics Division for four years and blah, blah, blah. He's worked for the Her Majesty. He was the head of the Her Majesty's Treasury hmm? and director of Microeconomics Policy and Perspectives and, and Prospects, I should say, and also head of the Government Economic Service with overall responsibility for the professional economists in Her Majesty's Government. Way up there in the European Union, he's a complete internationalist. He believes in that borders should be taken down, etc., etc., etc. And he's one of the top characters in these teams for managing how you you think and how you work and how to prompt you and manage you and make you and make you also want to give up and be an internationalist. He also said that there are some temporary losers in mass migrations into your countries. I guess he's talking about the folk maybe are being killed maybe or what? who who is he talking about? When he says some some losers, you know, a few, you know, here and there. So it's collateral damage. Because these are the same characters, remember, that use warfare. And can manipulate the BIT. Don't forget, they can get the public whipped up to go to war with any country that they, their their masters decide they want to take over and loot for oil or whatever it happens to be. Don't forget that. These are the top propagandists. These behavioural insights teams. Top propagandists. They get people fighting each other, etc., etc. Like you wouldn't believe. And then tell you all to calm down and just accept it when you get the blowback and the fallout from all. No one amongst the public of any country here is going to, is going to profit from this in any way at all. Only the elites themselves and economists and those involved with the banking systems and the military-industrial complex. To turn you into the Orwellian system and the Brave New World system that... Uh, People in the know at the time understood perfectly well was already <laughs> being studied and ready to implement back in the 1930s, like Brave New World. Now they have the technology to do all, and they're managing it. And H.G. Wells was well aware of it too, and he and wanted it, and he he really pushed for the free love, not because he wanted the all to be happy. But to destroy the family unit, he said, and get women into the workplace that would double the tax base. Double the tax base. And they'd have affairs at work, because they'd be there with other members of the opposite sex longer during the day than they would be with their spouses in the evening. It's all, he wrote about this openly. One of many people working for the elite of that time. Now you have the descendants of the elite and professionals managing your minds for you. Quite something, isn't it? Remember, two fortune by the books and discs I have at cuttingthreematrix.com. And you can donate as well. you see how to do it at cuttingthreematrix.com and alanwattsentinel.eu. And then remember, that that's the only place you'll find these books because they're not sold anywhere else. Only by me. So... What I'm trying to do is just give you some insight into how things really, really work. And maybe next week I'll give you some examples of how it's worked already 
in certain areas. Remember, too, I did study. I've been on programs before me and called the pessimist sometimes by rather big shots, you might say. And I say, well, I'm not a pessimist at all. It's just that I've studied since childhood this kind of stuff. And I've read all the books. I, as opposed to the person who was interviewing me, I, I really did do the reading. I didn't have my bio stolen uh, <laughs> and used by such a person. But uh, I actually did all the studying and the reading. And I knew what they were capable of. And it's not pessimistic to understand what's really happening. Not at all. Don't ever think that. Only a fool, only a fool will go off half-cocked, thinking they can dominate and take over or beat whatever it happens to be without knowing what you're up against. The first law is to know what you're up against. And that's why these behavior insight teams, etc., working for intelligence services, the various services that are banning people from the Internet, by the way, uh, through the, the British Cybersecurity Tower, working with Google, and with the other organizations around them, the Nestas and the BIT, etc. Uh, then, uh, of course, it was meant to rein it in eventually, rein it all in. And till you'll find most folk won't be able to get their own platforms, and perhaps the ones that uh, helped to get rid of you all off it and were used will have their own platform, of course. Who knows? It's interesting to watch all this happening, isn't it? But believe you me, until you understand what you're up against, you can't fight it. You can't. And when you fight it, you can't go off in a whole bunch of other areas too about your comrades who are fighting alongside you. And that's what they call them, is comrades. I don't call them comrades. Because you have all kinds of groups, again, they'll jump in the act and they're more interested in other things. They've got nothing to do with it. And, and it waters, it dilutes everything. You've got to stick to the subject and the subject only because without that, no group is safe. You have massive warfare on you all the time. You have massive warfare managing all the different protest groups out there too, by the way. The leaders all know this, the followers generally don't. Because it's perfect management. You're in a complete management system. Don't ever forget it. So from myself, Alan Watt, from Ontario, Canada... It's good night. May your God or your God's go with you.